Judges chapter number 7, verse number 16. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter and then four verses into chapter number 8. And I do that to give us context tonight. I want you to notice it very carefully. The Bible says, and this is speaking of Gideon. Now, most of us are familiar with the story of Gideon and how that uh, Gideon's 300 overtook the Midianites. And we jump in on the tail end of this story. So I want you to listen carefully. The Bible says, and he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp. And say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bethshida, and to Zerarath, and to the border of Abel-Meholah, unto Tabak. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, and out of Asher, and out of all Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites." And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and take before them the waters of Bethbara unto Bethbara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock. Oreb and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side Jordan. Now notice this carefully. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not, when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? And God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over, he and the three hundred men that were with him, notice this phrase, faint yet pursuing them. Let's read that verse again, verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the three hundred men that were with him faint yet pursuing them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless your word, anoint me in the preaching of it in such a way that not lift me up, but that would lift up the high and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Speak to each heart that which is most needful. Lord, we do pray for Brother Ralph that you'd touch his body, that your will would be accomplished in his life. Lord, we know when we pray and ask you to do this that you're able You're not only able, Lord, we know that you're interested in his life and in ours. And so we ask that you'd meet with him and work in a mighty way. Father, do in each heart what what is needed for your glory and for your honor, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. 
Amen. Now, as I read this passage, I'm struck by this little phrase that's used in verse number 4. Speaking of Gideon and this ragtag group, just 300 men, that God has used to overthrow the Midianites as they're chasing the Midianites away from the battlefield. Uh, They encounter several obstacles. We're not going to talk about all of them tonight. But the Bible says about them that they were faint, yet they still continued to pursue them. There's a New Testament verse that this reminds me of. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Could I say to you tonight that there's such a thing as being weary in the work without being weary of the work. If you serve God long enough, you're going to experience times of fatigue and weariness. You see, Gideon was directly within the will of God in this passage. In fact, God had gone over and above to declare to Gideon that it was his will that he should defeat the Midianites. Uh, Gideon was not way out in left field. Gideon was not caught in some illicit sin. Gideon hadn't made shipwreck of his life. Gideon was doing exactly what God would have him to do and a job that nobody other than Gideon could do. But still, he grew faint in the fight. You serve God long enough, you're going to have these seasons of weariness. These times, and I think the best description given, at least it is for the way I feel sometimes, and probably for the way you feel sometimes too, is feeling like a wrung out dish rag. Like you've given every bit of yourself, there's nothing else to give. Could I say to you, don't feel like that's an unnatural feeling to have. You're going to experience that. At times. And I want to just take a moment tonight and I want to look at these three words faint yet pursuing. You see, when I think of the word faint, I think of the feebleness of Gideon and his group. You know, Gideon's a very interesting Bible character. When the Lord finds Gideon, or at least when the Scriptures find Gideon, when he comes upon the scene, he is hiding threshing wheat so the Midianites won't take it from him. And the Lord shows up and begins to speak to Gideon. And he says to him, he says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, who? (laughs) Gideon says, who? You're not talking about me, Lord. And in fact, Gideon's name means valiant and means warrior. But he thought to himself, well, they really missed the bar when they named me this. They must have uh, thought of another young person. Hey, I must have got switched with the other babies there in the hospital uh, in Jerusalem because they didn't mean to name me valiant. He was a coward at his very core. And yet this is the person that God... Can I say to you that what God wants us to be is not what we are when He finds us. There is a progression of the working of God in our life that takes place. Theologians use this term, progressive sanctification. You say, what is that? Well, what that means is this. In the eyes of Christ Jesus, or in the eyes of God the Father, when He sees us, He sees us as justified, perfect, righteous. But in our everyday life, that is not the reality of it. There's what they call positional sanctification, how God sees us. But then there's what uh, we call progressive sanctification. That is where we at in this life that we're living. And the truth is, whenever God saw Gideon, He didn't call him by what he already was. He called him by what he could be. 
Aren't you thankful when God saw us, He didn't see us for what we were. He saw us for what we could be in Jesus Christ. I mean, aren't you thankful? And I'm not saying God's blind. God knew who and what we were when He saved us. But I'm saying when God saw us, He didn't say, Oh, look what a mess you're in. Oh, look how rotten you are. Oh, I really ought not save you. He looked at you and He said, You may be all those things, but I love you anyway. And boy, you'll be something once I get a hold of you. And that's what we see in the life of Gideon. Gideon was uh, known to be a great warrior, at least by his name he was supposed to have been a great warrior. But in his life he really wasn't. And so God goes to Gideon and he uh, declares to him that he is going to uh, use him to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon still doesn't believe the Lord. And most of you are familiar with the passage where he uh, sets the fleece out before the Lord. And he didn't like uh, the Lord's answer the first time, so he set it out again. He was trying to make sure. What I'm saying is Gideon was right where he needed to be. But still he got weary. And as I read this passage, I began to think to myself, what was it that made them so faint? Why were they any more faint than anyone else? And what are some things in our life that can draw us into a season of weariness? I want you to notice three things. I see their faintness, and I think, number one, that they were faint because of the deserters that were around them. You see, if you study this passage, you'll find that uh, Gideon, he uh, sends the word out, and he says, I want any and all that will come and fight. And by the way, if all it means is saying yes, most people will do it. But when it comes down to the actual fight, and you'll find a very precious few that will get down in the ditch and go along with you and serve God with you. And so the Bible tells us that 32,000 men gathered on that hillside. And Gideon said, oh, I've got an army now. He said, it's not much compared to the Midianites. If I believe me and God, we can do something with it. You know, half the time when we're bragging about what me and God can do, God's still not whittled us down far enough. And so uh, what the Lord says to Gideon is he says, all right, Gideon, I want you to find out who means business. I want you to go out and I want you to tell that army, if you're fearful, if you're afraid, if you want to go home, you can go home right now and we won't call you a coward. And the Bible tells us that 22,000 men turned around and walked away. Could you have imagined how Gideon must have felt? Here he had this great vast army before him. I mean, you can almost see the shimmering of the spears and the swords and and the shields. You can see the young, bright faces. Uh, You can see young men full of strength and vigor and ready for the battle. But when it came a matter of really fighting, they turned around and walked off. Let me tell you something you're going to experience sometimes in the Christian walk. As you serve God, you're going to see people you never thought would walk away turn around and walk away. You're going to see people that you, you would have, I mean, you would have given three paychecks to bet that they were going to stick in and serve God. But then when they got to the point that they didn't care what people thought anymore, they, uh, they didn't care what anyone around them thought anymore, uh, they weren't trying to keep up appearance, they weren't trying to be political anymore, they turn around and they walk away. And so Gideon is left with only 10,000. Gideon says, it's okay. Me and God, we can do this. We've got 10,000. Me and you, Lord, we can handle this. So the Lord says, well, Gideon, I'm not so sure about that. I want you to try something else. And Gideon says, oh, my... <laughs> And so the Lord says, Gideon, I want you to take your army down to the river. And I want you to tell each and every one of them to get a drink. He says, Gideon, you're going to find two types of men there. You're going to find the type that are going to get down on all fours, stick their face in the water, and lap it like a dog. He says, Gideon, those are the ones you have to get rid of. And you're going to find others that whenever they get down, they'll get down on one knee, and they'll take their hand and scoop it into the water. And they'll watch vigilantly around them as they take a drink. Gideon, those are the people that you need. Can I say in the Christian walk and in the church and in the service that we're doing for God, 
We need careful Christians. I'll tell you the people that stick in and serve God the longest, those that are looking around for the enemy to creep up on them. You know the people that get upset and get cross or get hurt or whatever happens, the next thing you know they're out? They're the people that aren't looking for the devil to strike. And so when things happen, they don't blame the devil. They blame the person that the devil used to do it. Uh, Whenever something happens, they, they think it's misfortune. No, it's not misfortune. It's a spiritual warfare. This is a battleground. What the old songwriters say, it's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation field. So uh, leave if you want to, leave if you will. He said, I came here to fight. I came here to stay. The fact is, those that are willing to be vigilant and look around, listen, it'd help us so much if we get to the place where we'd see things through spiritual eyes, where we'd start looking around and seeing that there's a warfare taking place. You know how you combat the devil? Some of you say, well, I don't know if I believe in the devil. Well, I can't help you then. How, what, would, what would your enemy do to you if you walked on the field of battle and said, I don't even believe you're real? That can sound good. That may make you feel good in the moment. But when the army overruns you, all of that delusioned idea isn't going to make a difference. You know how the Bible says we're to deal with the devil? It says to be sober and to be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know what sober means? This is a whole other message, but it needs to be preached. You know what sober means? Now, most of us think of the idea of sober as not drunk. And in a lot of ways, that's probably the best way that you can explain it. I used to tell this illustration. I'm sure I've told it from the pulpit. If you want to know what the opposite of sober is, turn on Andy and watch old Otis. Amen? Stumbling around. He's not aware of what's going on around him. He's always seeing pink elephants. Amen? (laughs) I'm going to have to ask some old drunk whether they've really ever seen pink elephants. I don't know if that ever really happens or not. But, uh, you know, he's not aware of what's taking place around him. To be sober means to be keenly aware of what's going on around you. In other words, when something happens, listen, you ever find, you ever notice it's always Sunday morning when you wake up feeling bad? Isn't that always true? You wake up on Saturday morning and you've got, uh, you know, a steel pole sticking out of your head from where it fell on you through the night through a storm and you'll jump up and want to run and go. But then Sunday morning comes around and you wake up and go, oh, I can't get out of bed. It's funny how heavy them blankets get. That's not by accident. You ever notice how you stay up half the night watching foolish movies on the television, but then you uh, go and try to get alone in your prayer closet and all of a sudden you're out like a light. You ever notice how you can sit and read some kind of uh, nonsense, uh, some kind of book, and you can read it for hours and hours and hours and not even know that you've been doing it, but you open the Bible and you get three pages, and then all of a sudden you're starting to look around for something else to do. Be sober. Recognize the enemy around you. And what does it mean to be vigilant? To be vigilant means to be watchful. To be sober means to be aware, but to be vigilant means to be watchful. In other words, look for the devil to work and to act and to strike. It's funny, we're all sitting there waiting for God to move and to work. And I understand that, and we should be waiting for that. But we ought to just as readily be waiting for the devil to work, because he's seeking to work in our lives too. So, the Lord says to Gideon, Gideon, those that will scoop down into the water and drink with their hand, those are the ones that need to stay. And I'm sure Gideon was trying to uh, padded every way he could. You know, I can see him down there. Somebody's on all fours and then just scoops down and gets to drink water. I can see Gideon going, Lord, you saw that. It counts. Amen. But sure enough, only 300 were left. Gideon's feeling pretty low. 
But do you know a lot of times that's the situation we find ourselves in? That seems to be about the statistic of it, about 1%. And some would say, well, there was only 300. No, you've got to remember something. You may feel like, oh, preacher, I'm part of the 300. I'm part of that small crowd. I'm the only people serving God. But let me remind you, it wasn't 300, it was 302. You say, well, who were the other two? Well, Gideon was one of them, and then the Lord was the other one. Don't let the minority of the matter discourage you. Don't let the uh, minuscule size of the army discourage you. God doesn't need very much to do a whole lot with. And sometimes it's easy to look around at everyone quitting and grow faint because of it. But then I want you to notice a second thing. I think that they were faint not only because of the deserters, but I think they were faint because of the dispute that they had been in. They had been in the battle. Now, they hadn't done much fighting. The Lord had done the fighting for them. But still, they were on the battlefield. They had been there all night. They had been crying with a loud voice. They had broken their pitchers. They had been shining their lamps. They had been in the warfare. And no doubt they were worn out from it. Let me tell you something. Just as you endeavor to serve God, there's going to be a battle that will wear you out if you're not careful. The battle every day to control your tongue, to control your flesh, to control your anger. The battle every day to listen to the Holy Ghost instead of listening to the flesh is a battle that will keep you weary if you're not careful. We have, why do you think it is that we need such strength from the Lord? Let me tell you why a lot of Christians today have given up on the Word of God, the house of God, the prayer closet of God. They've given up on those things. They're not fighting the battle, and so they don't think they need the strength. You know why a lot of people are... And we're going to talk about it in a second, but you know why a lot of people are always picking fights? Because they're not in the real fight. And because they're not in the real fight, they've got to pick a fight to feel like they're fighting. Let me tell you something. You start really serving God, you'll have enough on your hands without having to nitpick somebody else. You start serving God, you'll have enough on your plate without having to go and uh, gossip into busybody in someone else's business. Uh, just the fight that we have is enough to keep us weary. And it is a battle. Day in and day out. You say, I don't think it is. Well, then you're probably not fighting it. But if you really, I mean, I, listen, it becomes more real to me every day that I live what a battle we're fighting. I can see it. And I don't mean see it with my visible eyes. But I mean, spiritually, I can see it. As a pastor, you can watch the devil try to destroy lives. You can watch the devil set traps before, before people's feet. And daily, it seems, I'm more keenly aware that this is a battle that we're facing. We were talking today. We were sitting at a restaurant, and uh, we saw a whole group. Some of you are going to call me critical when I say this, but... Well, just call me critical. We saw a whole group of young people come in. A whole group of them. A bunch of little ones dressed in t-ball uniforms. And I looked at Brother Kerry who was with me. I said, isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame when those kids should be in church that their parents who need to be in church too had them out on a t-ball field? Let me tell you something. You remember a time, some of you remember a time when they didn't have softball games on Wednesdays or on Sundays. That ain't an accident, friend. It ain't an accident. Why is it? Got all day Saturday to play a t-ball game, but they want Sunday. Got all day Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday to have them practicing. 
But they want Wednesday between about 6 and 8. Why is that? This is a battle, friend. That's why. And you know the hotter that the battle gets, the more defined the battle lines get too. I mean, it starts to get settled. You start off with a battle, and in the first stages of it, it's just a mass of people. But as you get further on in that battle, pretty soon people start to fall away. And those lines get drawn pretty clearly. You know what's happening? Parents are going to have to start making their mind up which side of the battle line they want to be on. Parents are going to start making their minds up which line of the battlefield they want their kids on, their grandkids on, their family on. We're going to have to make up our minds about it. And it'll wear you thin, friend, if you're not careful. I think because of the dispute. But I see a third thing. The Bible tells us that as they're fleeing from the battle, they meet up with the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites are Israelites. And they say to the Ephraimites, they say, Join in the battle and chase them under the waters of Bethabar and Jordan. In other words, you know what they say? They say, You go that way and we'll go this way. We'll make sure we get every last one of them. And so the Ephraimites say, okay, we'll go with you. And they chase them. And they get kings of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. How would you like to have that name? Zeb. <laughs> and they take and kill them. And when they come back, now listen, this is what I want you to gather. Here are people that are endeavoring to fight the battle with them. People that are involved. People that are side by side. And they come back. And you know what they start to do? They start to dispute and bicker and complain with the Israelites. They look at the Israelites and say, well, why didn't you send for us? By the way, Gideon had already sent the clarion call all over the hillside and the Ephraimites hadn't come. And you know, a lot of times the people that complain and say, well, I didn't know. Well, why wasn't I told? Well, why am I not involved? Uh, Half the time they're not even interested in it in the beginning. But what do we find in this passage? They come and they say to him, they say, You didn't involve us and you didn't invite us. How dare you? And you know what Gideon says to him? Gideon basically says, listen, the scraps that you have left out of your vineyards are better than the best of what we've got. What do you have to complain about? Let me tell you something that can make you faint as you're pursuing the enemy. Discord can make you faint as you pursue the enemy. The bickering, the fighting... You remember I said a moment ago, some people aren't in the real fight, so they got to make fake fights. they got to cause problems over stuff where there's not really any problem. They've got to have bickering and dispute and complaining and, oh, I'm going to say it, drama at every step of the way. That's enough to wear you down. Let me tell you something. You get focused on the wrong group of people in a church, and it'll bury your spiritual walk. Because there's always, in a good Baptist church, in a good, solid, independent, fundamental, premillennial, soul-winning, King James Bible, old-timey Baptist church, there will always be a group of complainers. You say, am I in that group? Well, I'm not at liberty to say. (laughs) There's always going to be a group of complainers. People that can't be pleased. People that there's always something wrong. Always there's a group of complainers. You get your eyes on those people, they'll bury your spiritual walk. 
It's just like these people say, well, I don't go to church because all hypocrites are there. Hey, listen, you go to Walmart and they got hypocrites there. The difference is Walmart has what you need and you don't think the church has what you need. So you'll drop out of the church over the hypocrites, but you won't drop out of the Walmart over the hypocrites. Instead, you know what you do when you go to the Walmart? You go and you don't pay attention to the hypocrites. You pay attention to getting what you need. And you'll find if you'll go to church with the same mentality, you'll stick in. Sure, there's hypocrites in a church. You're probably one of them, and so am I. We're all hypocritical in some ways, because we're all just sinners saved by grace. We all have two natures within us, a, a spiritual nature and an Adamic or a carnal nature. And those two things are fighting like two rabid wolves, and we're always going to have times of hypocrisy. But you get your eyes on Jesus Christ and get it off of the hypocrites or the complainers or the do-nothings, you'll find you'll stick in. I think they were faint because of the arguing that was going on, the bickering, the backbiting, the gossiping. Listen, I mean, I think we ought to have long prayers, but I don't think we ought to have long tongues. And gossiping has ruined more good churches than bad doctrine, than anything else. You know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God also, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You say, somebody said something against me. Well, two things. One, maybe it needed to be said. Amen? But then two, won't you forgive them the way that God forgave you for all the blasphemies you committed against Him? But He did it for the person of Christ. You say, I never blasphemed God. You may not have done it with your lips, but you did it with your life, same as I did before I was saved. No, we ought to forgive one another. Get your eyes off of those do-nothings. Get your eyes off of the people that are bickering and complaining. Get your eyes on Jesus Christ. Looking unto Him, the book of Hebrews says, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. You know what Paul went on to say? He said, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You know what he's saying to us? He's saying, you've not got it all as bad as you say you do. Isn't that what he's saying? You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Paul's saying, I bled over my stand against sin. You've maybe got your feelings hurt. Well, let, and this is going to be real kind. You're going to think I'm compassionate when I do this. Bless your little heart. Somebody said something against you. Somebody criticized you. Somebody hurt your feelings. Wonder how many people's feelings hurt uh, that you've hurt inadvertently. Didn't even know it. Wonder how many things that you've said and people just got over. Truth of the matter is, you get your eyes on that discord, it can bear your spiritual walk. So I see their faintness. But I want you to notice this little three-letter word here. It says, faint yet. That little word yet. You know what that shows me? That shows me their fortitude. That even in spite of their faintness, they weren't going to quit in the pursuit of the enemy. You know what that tells me? That tells me three things. One, tells me we find a surrendered will in Gideon's band of men. It, when it says that they're faint, that's saying their flesh wanted to stop. When it's saying they're faint, that's saying that there was a portion of them, there was a faction of them, there was a side of them that wanted to just throw up their hands and give up and say, I'm done, I'm not going any farther. Yet, they chose to surrender their will to the will of God, and to press on in spite 
of their weariness. You know what's ironic? It's ironic that as we serve God and get weary in our flesh, we would use that as an excuse to stop when our flesh is supposed to be mortified and crucified with the person of Christ Jesus. You know what we should do when we begin to get weary? We should thank the God of heaven and ask Him not just to tire our flesh, but to crucify our flesh. You ever wonder why the Bible prescribes fasting? Fasting is not meant so that carnal people can sit around and brag about how long they went without a meal. Fasting is not designed for digestive or uh, nutritious or health reasons, although it is a healthy thing to do. Fasting is given as an exercise for you to show your flesh that it does not have dominion over you. It's a reminder to yourself that God's in control and not you. See, they had a choice to make. Do we go on even though we don't feel like it? Or do we stay here and lay down, which is what we feel like doing? They said, we're not going to do our will We're going to surrender to God's will. We see a surrendered will. But it denotes also to me a singleness of mind. You can kind of see it. And I don't know, I mean, this may uh, may be a little bit of sanctified imagination. But you can picture as this group of people is running along at breakneck speed, just in a full sprint, pursuing after the Midianites, trying to catch up with them. And you can see there's always those. It'd be me if I was in that group. I'd be the one kind of lagging behind, you know. Lungs are burning, sweat's pouring. I've lost a shoe somewhere, you know. Just barely hanging on. And you can see that there would be some that would say, Oh, Gideon, oh, we've got to stop. We can't keep going. We can't keep going. And you can hear Gideon at the head of the pack saying, Come on, men. There's a job to be done. And some would say, Oh, but Gideon, we've driven them off. Gideon says, But we've not driven them to the sea yet. There's still a work to be done. We must press on. I can see some run beside a cool flowing stream and say, Oh, Gideon, can't we just stop for a moment? He says, there's no time. We must keep going. I can see some run beside a big and fruitful shade tree and some say, Oh, Gideon, let us just rest for a moment. And Gideon says, No, we must keep going and keep going and keep going because there is one job for us to do and we must accomplish it. Gideon says the whole reason this army exists is to defeat the Midianites. And we'll do nothing else until that's done. God help us to have Christians like that in the day that we live in. That would say, I'm not going to get distracted with this. I'm not going to get distracted with that. I'm not going to get distracted with the recreation or the pleasures of this world. I'm not going to get distracted with the discouragement or the discord of others. I'm not going to get distracted by this. I'm not going to get distracted by that. I'm just going to keep going as long as God allows me to. A singleness of mind. Gideon knew he had one chief purpose in that moment. And he was seeking to fulfill that purpose. What's your chief purpose in life? You ever stop to ask yourself that? Oh, I know, most of us, we just, we just kind of live and we go on and we exist and we go from day to day. And I understand that. But ask yourself, the, uh, young people, ask yourself this question. Old people, I'm not going to point, I'll point at Larry, but other than Larry, I ain't going to point when I say old. Older people, ask yourself this question. What is your chief purpose? 
And then let me ask you this. Does your life measure up with your lips when you answer it? I know what most everyone would say in this room. Well, to serve God, preacher. To serve God. That's my chief purpose. To serve God. Because that's the answer we've been trained to give. But does your life measure up with that? Is that what your life is about? Not asking what your lips are going to say. I'm not even asking what your mind or your heart is going to say. Oh, we, boy, we like to lift up that heart, don't we? Follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. No, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And who can know it? You follow your heart and you'll wind up in the ditch. You follow the Word of God and you'll wind up straight and narrow. You say, well, what does your heart say? I'm not asking what your heart says now. I'm asking what does your life say? What are you working for? What are you striving for? Some of you say, preacher, we can't all be in full-time ministry. That's not what I'm asking. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to be serving Jesus Christ. I'm asking, what is your life answer to that question? Is there a singleness of mind and purpose? But then I want you to notice the third thing I see here. When I see this passage, I think it implies to us a supernatural strength. They were faint, yet. They were weary, but... They were frail, and yet they still kept going. You see, God gave them the strength that they needed in each footstep, in each moment. You know where a lot of us get discouraged? We want God to give us everything we're going to need for a year from now. And when He doesn't do it, we start complaining about it and getting upset about it. And we say, well, you know, I just want to... I've heard young people. This was always something that I dealt with with young people. And, and I don't know if our young people are like this or not, but when I, when I was a youth pastor... Young people always wanted to know about five or six things. If you could answer this for them, they'd be satisfied. They want to know who they were going to marry. They want to know where they were going to work. They want to know where they were going to go to college. They wanted to know what kind of kids they were going to have. I don't know if, how many or whether they're ugly or pretty or what they were wondering, but they always wanted to wonder, you know, know about that, what kind of house they were going to live in, and so on and so forth. And most of them were always so consumed with finding the answers to those questions that they missed what God was doing right in front of their nose. Adults are the same way. Adults have a tendency. You know the difference? You know the difference? Young people wonder. Older people plan. And neither of it comes to any fruition if we're going to be pleasing to God. The fact is, most young people are asking these questions. Most other, older people are pursuing these dreams. And none of us giving a thought to what the will of God is for our life. Day by day, moment by moment, step by step, Gideon's army was given the strength to pursue. You know what the Bible says about Asher? And by the way, I think we could probably assume this was true of those that had come out from Asher and Naphtali as well. You know what the Bible says about Asher? Whenever uh, that in the Old Testament uh, that uh, Jacob is giving blessings to all of his sons, and he comes to Asher, he says, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. In other words, whatever you face, whatever challenges materialize before you, God will always meet those needs if you'll be single-minded in serving Him. And then I see this word pursuing. I, I see their feebleness in the word faint. I see their fortitude in the word yet. But I see their following in the word pursuing. What were they doing? Most of us would have stopped 
when we put the Midianites to flight. We just said, well, job done, good deal. You know, by the way, a lot of us, that's how we live our lives. We come to a challenge and we seek God while it's right in front of our face. But then when it passes, we stop seeking God. Uh, you know, a lot of families do it. They'll come into problems, whether it's marital problems or children problems or whatever it might be. Then all of a sudden they're broken and they need God and they're pleading and they're begging God to intervene, to work, to move, to do something. And then as soon as that problem seems to back off, they back off and they stop pursuing. They kept pursuing. They could have said, we've uh, routed the Midianites. We've turned them away. That's a victory. But Gideon said, no. Even though we could probably stop, God's commanded us to destroy the Midianites. So they kept going. And I see three things that because this was there, they kept going. First, I think they kept going because the enemy was still there. As long as the Midianites were there, they were going to keep going. Can I tell you something? You're going to have to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil as long as you live in this life. It will never stop. It will never cease. Some of you say, well, preacher, that's discouraging. No, the Lord gives us strength. But I'm just trying to prepare you for it. You're going to have to fight Him every day, the flesh in particular, for the rest of your life. You know what it says of our Lord and Savior in Luke chapter number 4? Most of us know Luke chapter 4. It's the story of the temptation of the Son of God. And most of us, we focus on the story. You know, we, we focus on how that uh, the devil said, you know, you're the Son of God, command that these, bread, these stones be made into bread. And uh, that's the only verse that concerns me that, that the apostles were, and that our Lord was not Baptist. Because I'm pretty sure if they was Baptist, he would have probably said biscuits. Amen. But... Command these stones to be made into bread. Then he takes him up on a high hilltop and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, all these can be yours if you bow down. Then he takes him up to a pinnacle of the temple and says to him, cast yourself off. Uh, The angels shall bear thee up. What he's saying is reveal your deity and the fact that you are the Son of God and the Messiah. Reveal that to everybody before the time God's appointed. And we all focus on that. But there's an interesting statement at the end of that passage where, you know what the Bible says? It says the devil departed from him for a season. Just for a season. We think of that as being the only time that the devil tempted Christ, but it's not. For one thing, the Bible says that he was tempted the entire 40 days he was in the wilderness. But beyond that, understand that there was a perpetual temptation Always taking place. Uh, Some of you say, well, uh, what do you mean a perpetual temptation? Well, that's why the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are. He wasn't tempted just there in the wilderness, but constantly. While there's an enemy to fight, we ought to fight him. One old preacher put it this way. He said, as long as I have fists, I'm going to beat the devil. And if they cut off my fists, I'm going to kick him to death. And if they cut off my feet, uh, I'm going to try to bite him to death. And if they pull out my teeth, I'll try to gum him to death with the last breath that I have. As long as there's an enemy, we need to be fighting. But I would say not only as long as there's the enemy, but I would say as long as there's the energy, we need to be fighting. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, as long as God sees it fit to give us the strength day by day, we ought to expel 
and exhaust that strength in His service and in His cause. God doesn't give us anything for no reason. And so if God gives us the strength, we ought to go on for His glory and for the glory of Jesus Christ. We're so selfish. I mean, listen, I, I know there's Dr. Phil, he, he wouldn't know what to do with that. Uh, you know, Joel Osteen, we wouldn't know what to say about that. But we're selfish. We really are. Here God's given us the legs that we have, and we won't use it to go anywhere for Him. Given us the breath that we breathe, and we won't use it to speak anything for Him. Given us the hands that He's given us, and we won't use them to do anything for Him. And given us the strength for it. And we won't use that strength and energy for Him. As long as we've got it, we ought to be using it. Let me tell you something. I fear sometimes that if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. I fear sometimes the things that God's given us, He's given us for a reason. And if we're not careful, He'll take them away if we're not using them for His glory and honor. Now, some of you say, oh, preacher, you're trying to scare me. No, I'm not trying to scare you. My words ain't going to change anything in your life. But I still believe it's true. I've seen people, listen, I've seen God have to bankrupt people because they wouldn't use their money to glorify Him. I've seen God have to break up uh, homes through death because they wouldn't glorify God with it. I've seen God have to put people in sick beds because they wouldn't glorify Him with the way they lived. We better use the energy and the things that God's given us while it's there. But then I see something else. We're not going to read it, but as you get further down in the passage, I think it's Long about verse number 13, I could be mistaken. But it says that Gideon returned before the sun came up. You see, the reason it was so important that he pursue them is because once the sun came up, they could make greater speed and cover more ground. They could get away. And so, in other words, let me put it this way. There was a limited window of time in which Gideon could do the work that was set before him. I think while the enemy is there, we need to keep pursuing. I think while the energy is there, we need to keep pursuing. But I think while the opportunity is there, we need to keep pursuing. We need to work, what does the song say? Till Jesus comes. Let me tell you something. If you're going to do something for God, you better get to it. Because Jesus could come back at any moment. If you're going to do something for God, you better do it now because you're not promised tomorrow. Uh, some of you may have thought, well, I'll do better next week or next month or next year. I'll do better when this gets straightened out or when that gets straightened out. You better do it now because you don't know how much time that you have. Some of you are saying, yeah, I know I need to witness to a friend or a co-worker or a family member, but I'll do it next time. No, you better do it now because Christ is coming back. You better do it while the opportunity is there. Because that opportunity will not last forever. I wonder how many of us... We all look forward to Christ coming back. I'm aware of that. And I do, in a sense. I look forward to Christ coming back. I really do. I say with John, Even so come, Lord Jesus. But you know what the Bible says in the Old Testament? The Bible says, Woe unto ye that desire the day of the Lord. It says the day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Now, I understand that's talking about the revelation of Christ and the judgment upon this world. But I think there's an application to the judgment seat of Christ, too. Because you know what Paul said? Paul said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
Now, I believe that terror he was talking about was not only the judgment of God on sinners, but I think he was also speaking of the terror that we'll have to experience at the judgment seat of Christ. You ever wonder why the Bible says that he'll have to wipe away all tears? We like to say right now, well, he's wiped away all tears in heaven, but he's not wiped away all tears in heaven, not just yet. But the Bible teaches us that after he's destroyed this earth and made a new heaven and a new earth, that he'll wipe away all tears. Why are there tears in heaven? Some would say, oh, well, preacher, there's tears in heaven because they look down at this existence in this world and it grieves them and breaks their hearts. But I don't necessarily think that's so. Because when I see in Revelation chapter 5, they're not looking around like a big fishbowl on us. They're all gathered around the throne looking at Him. So I don't think the heartache of this world is the cause for their tears. I think part of the cause is the fact that the cause of the righteous has not been avenged yet. Because the Bible speaks of some that would cry day and night asking the Lord when He would avenge them. But I think part of the cause of the tears that are in heaven is all the missed opportunities... All the people that thought they had one more day to get that thing done for Jesus Christ. All the people that thought they had another year to get faithful. Another year to study their Bible. Another year really going to do it right next year. Just wait until the resolutions come around and you'll see how many people have good intentions. But then long about this time of the year, March and May, you'll find out how many people weren't serious about it. We better do it while we got the time. Because we're not going to have the time forever. We ought to keep pursuing as long as God gives us the opportunity.